God's good, isn't he? I am so thankful. I don't know who said all the time, but I agree with you all the time. I am so thankful God gave us the book of Revelation. I'm so thankful that um, it's a book of hope. It's a book of trust. It's also a book of uh, just such transparency about what's going to be happening as time progresses. It helps us also to understand what's taking place in our nation and in the world culturally. Tonight as we continue, Revelation 17 and 18 are all about how God deals with Babylon. We've looked at before that Babylon is a spirit at work in the world. People that I respected deeply uh, when I was younger and um, really believed that America was Babylon and that America was going to be the place that God judged. And I'm not saying that couldn't be so, but I think the more I've studied the Word and Today I was talking to someone, they said, this is the first time you've ever preached through Revelation? I go, yep, it's the first time. I said, I've preached from passages of it, but I just wanted to be able to stand up and be able to say honestly that um, I felt like I was giving you not only the gist, but how to interpret and read the book of Revelation because the Bible promises as we looked at, that it's a book that you'll be blessed if you read it. You'll be blessed, I'll be blessed if I preach it. You'll be blessed if you live by it and obey it. Well, it's also been a book that's been subject to so much abuse through the years. And the two chapters, the one we looked at last week and the one we're looking at tonight, has been part of that abuse. Eugene Peterson, who translated the, the message, wrote these words in his book, uh, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. He said, 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history capped by a full exposition in Jesus Christ tells us that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more often than it's accepted, is dismissed by far more people than embrace it, and has been either attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it is given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, furious Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, Enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all of these cultures and civilizations, but always as a minority always marginal to the mainstream and never statistically significant. As I've contemplated those words that, in that book and I read everything that Eugene Peterson wrote, as I contemplated those words, I've thought about how often there's been a form of religion that has denied the power of godliness. I've thought about how that throughout history, there have been religious acts that have been done, but always, always acts tainted by people's lust for power and pride and ambition. And even today we see that. It's not just a Catholic church problem, it's a Protestant church problem as well. And so as we go through, and as I wrap up Revelation 18 tonight, 
It's a very somber chapter. Next week, we'll begin Revelation 19, 20, and 21. We'll wrap this book up, and it's a powerful closing. But what you're seeing contrasted is the great whore of religious and political and economic collusion contrasted with the virgin bride of Christ. And one of the things as a youth pastor, I used to always tell our students to kind of help them think through some of that symbolism in the Bible, that when we're born again, we're all sons of God, sons and daughters of God. But it's kind of strange for me as a man to think of myself as a bride, okay? I much prefer to say the church. Just, can I be honest there? I much prefer to say the church. I was talking to my son Christopher today about their upcoming wedding and uh, we were talking and reminiscing about mine and Becky's wedding and the plans that they're making and as I was talking to him this message kept coming back and what we're going to look at next week but the church is the bride of Christ and so what you're seeing here is the contrast and as we wrap this up tonight it will get violent it will get graphic. It will become intense. But you have to understand why this is so intense. And I think to kind of set the, 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 the tone for the message, if God did not judge sin, God would not be a beneficent, benevolent, merciful, loving God. If God just allowed evil to go unchecked, that would be the most hateful thing. It would be like you allowing your child to wander onto a busy highway to play because you want the child to be able to have its own way. It'd be like you ignoring a murderer or a child molester. It can be a nation. Like when I was in India, in everything I read, going to India, sitting with a students from a professor of a textbook from, uh, from the University of Southern California that I rode with that wrote the textbook, that there is no child prostitution and child sex slavery in India, and yet I saw them chained. I saw the, where thousands of them were at. It's turning our back and trying to say it doesn't exist. It's that tonight in the United States, a conservative estimate a conservative estimate says there's 200,000 sex slaves in the United States. There are some that believe that number is upward of 2 million sex slaves in the United States. Many of those are children. And the life expectancy of those children is only six years in this, this trade. And what does this do to us as a church? Do we not want to cry out? like those saints did, how long, oh God, how long before you judge, before you move? And I hope that I'm not sounding patriotic when I say this, but America is not nearly as bad as some of the other countries that I've been to in this world. And I think that's because of the presence of the church. Yesterday, one of my Jewish friends, we were talking about some of the Jewish relationships and the United States and other countries. And yesterday he looked at me across the table and he said, we are so grateful for our evangelical friends. And this is the owner of a, of a large company and with 
work that extends around the world. The evangelical church, I believe, is the salt and light of the world right now. You won't find in an evangelical church, and especially in Assemblies of God church, a debate, no matter how tearful and no matter how mournful it might sound, whether or not the Bible is the Word of God. You won't find in an evangelical church, and especially in the Assemblies of God church, you won't find us debating whether or not marriage between a man and a woman is God's plan, God's idea, what God created and ordained. You won't find in an evangelical or an Assemblies of God church, you won't find there being any debate about unity as being more important than truth. Without truth, you can never have unity. And that was part of, and most of you here were not here for when I did the series through Daniel, when we looked at that, that statue of Daniel and the feet made of iron and clay and how because of that admixture it was easy to collapse. And so tonight we look at a challenging chapter and we're going to be looking at the final fall of Babylon. So I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me and we'll read the first few verses together standing out of respect for the word of the Lord. And after all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority. And the earth grew bright with his splendor. Now, this is a different angel than the seven angels in chapter 15 and 16 that came out of the temple. And he gave a mighty shout, Babylon has fallen. That great city has fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture, and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen. Now, the influence of this city, which I believe is more of a spirit, and I'll deal with that in just a moment. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The word passionate is a good word right there, but it's almost an angry immorality. It's a defiant, it's a wrathful passion. It's a, it's a, it's a passion born out of wrath, shaking the fist in the face of God. That's, that Greek word is full of lots of, of feeling and emphasis. And the kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich. Lord, we read this chapter not from a position of of God hoping this happens soon. We read this chapter not from a position of go get them, God. We read this chapter with such great compassion in our hearts. And we pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us that before this time comes, that Lord, more than ever, we will be passionate followers of Christ. Not out of anger, but out of absolute love and devotion to you. And that we will be known for our love for one another. But I also pray for that anointing upon us, Lord, as we go through this chapter tonight and wrap up these two chapters. God, you will put upon our hearts just how important it is that we learn to share our faith story. That we learn how contagious it can be to others to know what God has done in our lives. And to have that great confidence that is born that when we step out in faith and share our story of your amazing grace in our life, that God, you take
take that message, you take that deed, you take that kind word, and you make it powerful in the lives of unbelieving ones, and you use that to open their eyes to their own need, their family's need, our nation's need for Jesus Christ. For it's in your holy name I pray tonight. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated and follow along with me. Well, Babylon, as we've looked at already last week, was a composite of religious and political and economic world system that is ruled by the Antichrist. We've already seen how he's come on the scene. We've already seen how he's setting up his rule. But you saw in the last chapter, in chapter 17, how that the political powers and the merchants turn upon the religious. Remember the scarlet woman sitting astride the beast? The scarlet woman was, was symbolic of, of the religious uh, compromises and her own love for luxuries is being consumed. But now this angel comes down from heaven and the Bible says that this angel has great authority it reminds me of what the Bible teaches us, that there are dimensions of power in the spiritual world. There are, there are orders of power and ranks of power. You might think like a flow chart or something like that. But this angel comes. It's not Jesus. It's an angel with great authority. But this angel also has a splendor that comes from being in the presence of God and a, and a mighty voice and he announces the end. His coming is so brilliant that he will literally light up the world. But what this angel announces is that there is nothing good that remains in Babylon. There's nothing good. Imagine the absolute vacuity of anything good or of anything holy or anything righteous. It's why occasionally when somebody says to me that America is the modern-day Babylon, I don't buy into that. I just see so much it is good in our culture that is left. I see churches that are preaching the gospel. I see people who are feeding the hungry and taking care of the homeless, mission dollars going around the world. I, I see people who are on, able to preach the gospel on television, like Dr. Jeremiah when he preaches on Sunday morning, or Pat Robertson with the CBN network. I, I see so much good that is taking place. And even though I don't like his, his moral life, I see so much good that President Trump has tried to do for Christians, especially for persecuted Christians and for the right of students to, to share. Never doubt that God can't use somebody that is far from him to accomplish something good. And I thank God for those who have influence in his life. I do think we have to be careful, though, with people in political power or business power or even religious power who promise to do something good but live an immoral lifestyle or stand for other things that are harmful because if we're not careful, we will do what almost happened to the church with this last generation of young people. They weren't sure whether we were Republicans or whether we were Christians. And many of them would say, I'm not into church anymore, I'm into Jesus. Let it never be said of Woodland that this church does not reflect the love, the mission, and the message of Jesus Christ. That's the splendor of the church. That's the glory of the church. It's the message, it's the mission that Jesus has given to us. 
But when you think of places where you see nothing good that is left or that remains, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can testify to you in some of those places I've been, the deep oppression and the darkness, the, the violence and the sense all around you that there is this hostility against everything that you stand for and what you try to do. I've been in some of those cultures. I, I can't say that I've been to a nation totally given over that, but I've been into cultures with in that nation where that takes place and there is idolatry, there's the worship of false idols, there is, there is witchcraft and satanic, Satanism and, and people trying to practice the dark arts and you go into those places and you feel the oppression that is there but never forget that greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world. I remember a number of years ago I was speaking at a convention in Charleston, South Carolina. And while I was at that convention, I took a break and was walking down the street with a friend of mine. And Dick and I walked into this place because it was just one of those weird looking places. And I said, let's go in and have a look. And there was all kinds of magic charms and magic spells right across from where this convention, this Christian convention with several thousand people was at that I was speaking to. And and I said, there was this lady in the back that was telling people's fortunes. And so Dick and I agreed that we would just walk around that building praying quietly and we would pray in the spirit. And all of a sudden, the woman who was doing the fortune telling and all of this kind of garbage, she stood up and was looking around just like this and says, I don't know what's happening, but I, I can't do this any longer in here right now. Well, we knew what was happening. And friends, I don't tell you that to dramatize. I tell you that because the church has to come back to the conviction of the power of God that is resident within the church. We do the world no favors by trying to be like the world. We want to be like Jesus and be faithful to his message, his ministry, and his mission. Can you say amen to that? And so that's very important as we look at this because the nations literally have gone mad with the wine of her passionate immorality. The word mad there, that, I'm taking that out of just looking behind the Greek words. They've lost their ever-loving minds because of what the beast is doing, the blasphemies that he is, he is uttering. And this is a political system now. We can never stand by a politician or a government just because it happens to be our government or any other government simply because it's our government. We have to speak truth to power. And that's what's happening here. The nations have literally are going mad. This will be happening at the end of time. But what you have here is the kings of the world, all these petty little kings. Think of Herod. Think of Pontius Pilate. Think of uh, 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 Epiphanes. They're getting close to Caesar because they want power. Without him, they are nothing. But because of having an ally, Caesar needs them to rule those outward posts. They need Caesar, and they strut around like peacocks. This was what the church was dealing with at the time, but it's also a picture, remember that dual prophetic law we talked about early on in the series, it's also a picture of what's going to be happening at the end of time. Because at the end of time, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, as Paul writes about him, he will be deceptive. He will come in with a policy of peace. He will come in with a policy of prosperity, and the world will believe him. And he'll set up his kingdom in that first three and a half years on those platforms of peace and prosperity. And then he will turn upon Israel. And the kings of this world will join with him. 
because of their lust for power. And we'll get into some more of that as we look at, at uh, Revelation chapter 19. But as the people of God, what John was calling upon the people of God was to look upon the inhabitants with, of Babylon with compassion rather than condescension. Sometimes it's easy for us as Christians to become condescending towards people that aren't lost. I've heard it in funeral sermons. Whenever I preach the funeral of someone that has died without Jesus, I never stand up and tell that family that that person has gone to hell. That's not my place to do. I just try to comfort the family and bring the good news of Jesus. And I've heard others when they've tried to preach these funerals of lost people, somehow or another feel like they've got to, to make the pronouncement. Friends, that's condescension. We want to come with compassion and hope. That person has already gone into eternity, perhaps without Christ, but there are people there who need our compassion. The homeless of this world, they don't need our judgment and throwing rocks at them. Many of them are on the streets tonight because of the cuts to mental health care and hospitals that have had to empty their their beds because they can't take care of them. Many of them are out there on the street tonight because there is no family support and they're living, some of them in places working two jobs and they still can't afford a home because of where they live at. We're called to look upon them with compassion and minister to them. So when you read this next passage of scripture, it's not like go God and yay. It's with a broken heart. I'm sure as John's writing this, his heart is breaking. Now, you've got to understand this. This, is, this Rome has put him on a penal colony. This Roman Empire has murdered already thousands of Christians. This Roman Empire has, has, has so infected two churches, Pergamum and Sardis, if I remember correctly, that they're already, put, John's having to warn them about their ties with the world and their ties with the world system. But still, as a pastor, he looks upon them with love and care. Never forget the same God that said, for God so loved the world, this world that hated him, this world that would crucify his son, is also the God that says, come out of this world. It's not that God hates the world. God has compassion upon this world. But let's look at this because I think you can understand a little better and let the scripture just do the talking here. I heard another voice calling from heaven, come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. Remember when we went through the seven churches, John is warning them what's going to happen. Some of them have grown cold. Some of them says, look, we're rich. We have need of nothing. <laughs> we're rich. Does it sound familiar to what you've already read in the book of Revelation? I am rich. <laughs> I'll never be a widow. So saying, we're rich, and, and God says to them, you have no idea that you are wretched, you're poor, and you're miserable. So they're being seduced by this world system. It's a message to us today. Don't be seduced by the systems of this world. Do not take part in her sins, or you'll be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven. That word piled actually means like glued together. Think of Legos. Think of Legos. It's not that God can't see them, but their sins are as piled as high as heaven, and God remembers her evil deeds. Now remember, <clears throat> when Moses was coming into the promised land, there were certain tribes of people, God said, you can't touch them yet because they have not come to the fullness of their sins yet. God says, just kind of go back. You, you have to have, remember, I've told you several times, sometimes you have to go back to the Old Testament to look at a verse and understand. 
children will suffer for the sins of their fathers unless those children repent and turn from their sins. God says if they repent and turn from their sins, he will not bring that judgment upon them. But we can be the beneficiaries of the sins of people. For instance, where I come from in the South, after the war between the states and the slaves were emancipated and set free, many of them returned to, to, to bondage and being literal slaves again because there was no land given to them. There was no mule given to them to farm with. And they had came back and worked on the very plantations that the nation had fought a very bloody civil war upon to set them free. Sometimes you have to take the people that have been harmed and help them out. That's called what the Bible says, talks about restitution and helping them. Now, in case you think I'm one of those who believe that we need to go back in time to make reparations, that will never work. And I've heard recently some politicians calling that for the black community, reparations need to be made. That will never work. Even um, John Perkins, who is one of my heroes when it comes to civil rights and when it comes to being a, a, a fiery pastor full of the love of Jesus, John Perkins says reparations will never work because many of them will go out and buy an expensive car and all the money will go right back to the hands of the rich people. And so there's a sense that we have to understand the context of what we're looking at here. Her sins have piled generationally and God remembers her evil deeds. Verse 6. Do to her as she's done to others, but double her penalty for all her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am a queen on my throne. I am no helpless widow. I have no reason to mourn. Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a what? Single day, in a single day, death and mourning and famine, she'll be completely consumed by fire for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. And you might read that and say, that's impossible. Friends, over 50 years ago, Nagasaki and Hiroshima were destroyed in an instant. We saw what a few crazed people could do with two airplanes in the Twin Towers in New York City right here in our own country. We saw what a crazed man from the thumb of Michigan could do with some fertilizer in Oklahoma outside of a, a government building. There is an island off the coast of Scotland. When I was in Scotland, I was learning about the island that the British government was researching anthrax to use anthrax as a weapon against Nazi Germany if somehow or another Germany was ever able to breach those defenses. Remember, Germany was on, excuse me, Britain was on its knees with the bombing day in and day out and to the United States came in and, and to the war. This island was uninhabitable for decades until finally a law was passed by the British government to go in there and clean it up. Imagine what would happen if one nation had unleashed anthrax on another. Never, never, never let it escape you the evils that people are capable of. What we've seen in times past is nothing to what's coming upon this world in the future. And that's not a negative. There are many things that can change the timetable of this. Revival is one of them. A sense of Christians standing up and being counted for Christ. God, listen carefully now. God loves the city. I'm from the country. 
But as I studied the Bible more and more, I missed the, I'll be honest with you, I missed the country. I miss not having to worry about talking too loud so that my neighbor overhears me while he's grilling his hamburgers or having with his family or, or something like that. I used to say, God loves the country. People created suburbs and the devil made the city. <laughs> and that was all wrong. Again, I was talking to my friend yesterday, my Jewish friend that um, I've just grown to love so much. And I asked him, I said, why have Jewish people congregated to cities, especially when you have such an agrarian history in Israel. They've congregated to cities for protection. They've congregated to cities for business reasons and for, for being able to work and being able to be close and have their own communities together. And, and for instance, the synagogue he goes to, everybody walks to, walks to synagogue. I almost said church. Walks to synagogue because they all live in the same community and because of the Jewish laws that prohibit driving to work on their Sabbath day. I was just marveling at that. But then I shared, God loves cities. The new Jerusalem that we'll be reading about, and I, I'm, on, I'm wanting to get, have you ever had such good news? You know, you've been preaching 18 chapters of this, and you're, you're ready to get to the good stuff, you know? The new Jerusalem is coming down. God built that city. I believe that was Eden, and I'll show you why I believe that was Eden. And God meant for man to tend it and to carry it and to grow it. And this beautiful city that's coming down from heaven. God loves cities. Cities are influential. Cities are influential. It's for the arts. It's for commerce. It's for business. It's for economics. It's for education. It's where all of these things flourish in a city. Becky and I have pastored in small towns. And you can reach an attorney in a small town, but you're never going to reach the legal profession. You can reach an artist in a small town, but you're never going to reach the artistic community. You can reach a banker, but you're never going to reach the economic community. Cities of the nations is where all of these things are gathered at. And so sometimes when I go into Detroit and I park my car and I get out and I just do a prayer walk around the city, I pray for revival. I pray for those businesses and those new buildings that are being remodeled that are coming in. God, build a church here as well. Plant a church right here in the city as well that will be thriving and vibrant with faith that can touch the automotive industry. And I, I've often wondered what would happen if one person like Bill Ford or somebody came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, what that could do to the entire automobile industry. And that's not beyond the possibility of dreaming because it has happened. I, last week I told you about politicians who had come to faith and others who had come to know Jesus and how they had changed the entire landscape and the entire civic life of their countries. Well, this passage tells me five things. Number one, God calls us to separate ourselves to him. What if, when he says come out and be separate from her, what is he saying? He says, separate yourself to me. He's not necessarily saying leave the city. If I was speaking to a, a downtown church, I would be saying, he's not necessarily saying leave the city. He's saying separate yourself unto him, unto his purposes and his way of life. Live for the glory of God in the city. Serve the purposes of God in the city and walk in the way of Jesus Christ. We're not called into monasticism. 
we're not called into little communes where it's just us and we live together and we never rub shoulders with the world. We're called to be the salt and the light of the world. And sometimes, sometimes, and please don't get angry at me when I say this because it does ruffle some people's feathers. Sometimes I meet people who aren't Christians, but there's enough of the image of God in them. There's enough of desire. They're more salty with the good they do. They're more salty with the way they live their lives than some self-obsessed Christians are. Take our talents, take our skills, take our, our brains, take our families, take whatever God has given us and let's use it for the glory of God. It's not my church, it's his church. It's not my family, it's his family. It's not my money, it's his money. It's not my life to do with what I want, it's his life. It all belongs to God. As I said Sunday morning, this is my father's world. And we are the sheep of his pasture. So he's saying, separate yourselves unto me. You can be in the city or you can be in the community. You can be in government. You can be in education. You can be in art without having the world to be in your life. Our separation is out of love for God. Why do we separate ourselves? It's out of love for God and fellowship with him. I was speaking to a um, group of pastors who had asked me to come and, and Becky and I to come and we did a leadership retreat for them. And we were up in the Amish country. And Becky and I were just so excited to go see the Amish people and people that live like that. And we went into one of those little stores and they got, because it's, they can't have electricity, they got these little kerosene lamps or Coleman lamps burning in the ceiling. And people were buying stuff in there like crazy. It's like, oh, this is a good buy. This is a good buy. And I kept saying it's a good buy. So I picked up something and I looked at it. And I called Becky over and said, look at this. It's expired. So I went through every shelf. Everything was expired. It was a good buy. I told Becky, so let's just buy one bag. I want to see. And they were the stalest cookies we'd ever bought. You know, when you separate yourself out of love for God and fellowship with Him, it doesn't matter if it's a meal of fried chicken and mashed potatoes. It doesn't matter if it's artwork. It doesn't matter if it's a sermon. It doesn't matter if it's repairing a, a furnace or an air conditioner. Whatever you do, it needs to be done for the glory of God and because you love Jesus. I remember when my dad would build a house. Sometimes he would take and show me other people's foundations. And he says, son, nobody will ever see this. And when I sell this house, nobody will ever think to pay me for this. But you always build what people can't see to make it safe and to make it sound and to make it strong. The foundation matters. We separate ourselves not only for love of God, but friends, think about the people that Jesus wants to fellowship with. When he fellowship with Zacchaeus, he changed Zacchaeus' life. When he fellowshiped with a woman caught in the act of adultery, he changed her life. When Jesus fellowshiped with two fiery guys who had a temper problem, John and James, he changed their lives. When Jesus fellowshiped with a man named Peter, and Peter says, Lord, stay away from me. I am a sinner. Jesus changed Peter's life. Peter had some real up and downs along the way, but in the end, Peter won. 
And it doesn't mean that I'm perfect overnight, but that's what he's saying. He's speaking, judgment is coming upon Babylon. So he's saying, separate for fellowship. Compassion for the world means we do not participate in the world's ways. That's what it means to have compassion. When I refuse to participate in the ways of the world, the pride of the flesh, us to the eyes. When I refuse to participate in the ways of the world, I'm having compassion. I'm not only doing that because I love God and I want fellowship, but that's showing compassion to the world. When a pastor ends up impregnating a teenage girl, he hasn't glorified God. He's brought hurt and shame upon his family and community. When a priest molests a boy, he hasn't glorified God. He's brought shame upon his community. When a man steals from his company and yet is known to be a deacon of the church or one of the men in the church that I was out to lunch with one day and we went over to his plant, he said, you see that man there? He goes, yeah, he says, he's a deacon in his church. He cusses like a sailor. He's a drunk. And, and, just, and I said, you're kidding. He goes, no, but he's a deacon in his church. And he lets everybody know that. That's not showing compassion for the world. The world mocks because they don't see how Jesus has made a difference. When the world looks at you, they need to see the difference that Christ has made. We're not perfect, we're forgiven, and we're growing in Christ. Can somebody say amen to that? So when you live a holy life, you're actually having compassion for the world. If you live a holy life and you look down upon the world, you're the opposite of holiness. If you live a holy life and, and you do all these legalistic things and then you don't love lost people, you're the opposite of what Jesus is. Jesus who was perfect holiness embraced the leper, embraced the sinner, and he changed the lives of all that would commit their lives to him. That's compassion. Babylon reveals to us the reprehensible and sinful web that dominates this world. You see that as you read through this this, this whole passage here, it's, it's, it's a web. It's like a spider's web. And it seems to be no accident to me today that the internet is called the World Wide Web. The number one money-making business on the web, and I have read in places that if pornography was somehow or another to go under, then the support for the, inter the, the World Wide Web would go under. And there's nothing more sticky and more seductive and attracting people today and destroying marriages and homes. Babylon has dealt with kings, but in the end, Babylon, the Antichrist, and Satan himself will deal with God Almighty, and we'll see at the end what God does with him. You need to see the investors in the transportation industry also lament here. The traders will cry and carry on because the bottom, and I'm reading from the message now, the traders will cry and carry on because the bottom dropped out of business, no more market for their goods, gold, silver, precious gems, pearls, fabrics of fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, perfumed wood, vessels of ivory, precious wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine and oil, flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that terrible traffic in human lives. Now friends, I dare say if you go through my house and if I was to go through your house, I'd find many of these same items. Wouldn't I? Would I find cinnamon in your house? Would I find perfume in your house? Would I find a, a silk dress ladies in your house? You've got cars, that would be the, the transportation here that's talking about. Everything you live for, gone. 
All delicate and delectable luxury lost. Not a scrap, not a thread to be found. The traders who made millions off of her kept their distance for fear of getting burned and cried and carried on all the more. Doomed, doomed, the great city doomed, dressed in the latest fashions, adorned with the finest jewels, in one such hour, wealth wiped out. I wonder if they thought of the city of Pompeii. I wonder if they thought, and if I know they couldn't have known what we know now of people clutching bags of gold and things like that as they tried to get out of that city. All the ship's captains and travelers by sea, sailors and toilers of the sea, stood off at a distance and they cried their lament when they saw their smoke from her burning. Oh, what a city. There was never a city like her. <coughs> they threw dust on their heads and cried as if the world had come to an end. Doomed, doomed, the great city doomed. All who owned ships or did business by sea get rich on her, getting and spending. And now it's over, wiped out in one hour. If the kings wanted power, the transportation industry and the merchants, they were in this for the economics. Many of them, and this is, this is where we have to be just a little bit careful, and, and keep in mind what I'm saying, just a little bit careful. The worship of the beast, excuse me, the worship of Rome, Rome demanded worship for everything it stood for. Rome didn't care what God you served as long as you said Caesar is Lord. Remember that? We, I, I try to bring that up ever so often because it's key to understanding the mark of the beast. Those Christians John was writing to because they were compromising. They said, it's okay. We can burn a little incense to Caesar, but we know Jesus is Lord. We'll say Caesar's Lord. He says, you can't do that. He's got to be Lord of everything. You've got to take a stand. Even at the cost of your life, you've got to take a stand. The mark of the beast, these people willingly took because the reason some of these cities grew so fabulously wealthy is they built temples to Caesar, they built temples to the Roman gods, and they would say Caesar is Lord, and therefore Caesar would do business with them, and they grew fabulously wealthy. Fabulously wealthy. And so what he's writing about here is not the evil of wealth. What he's writing about is the willingness to compromise with sin in order to become wealthy. And especially he's writing to Christians. You see, like the Sabbath, look at me, like the Sabbath, wealth was created for man and not man created for wealth. There's nothing wrong with any of those things except for human slaves. There's nothing wrong with any of those things to possess and to have. As long as you don't let them take first place in your heart and your life. The investors and the transporters, what they wanted was commodities. And, and, and if, if I was to take, this is, and by the way, this is an impressive list that John wrote. Think about this list. John's writing from Patmos. John is a sophisticated man. He is the apostle of Christ. He's a sophisticated man. But when you're talking silk coming all the way from China, Silk, it came from India. When you talk about spices, it came from India, from all across Africa, from as far north in Europe as, as, as Rome extended his empire. You talk about the slaves. 
many of them were not just captives. Listen, this is important. Many were not just captive slaves from battles. Many of these slaves were children because their families were so poor they couldn't take care of them, they would discard them. Remember the stories of the early Christians taking those children into their homes. One of the reasons they took them to their homes is because the dogs would devour those children, the birds would devour those babies on things. But there were slave traders that would take those babies and raise them. It's, they were called foundlings. That's what found, we found them. They were foundlings. They would raise them, and then when they got old enough, they would sell them into to whatever kind of slavery they thought they were qualified for, whether it was manual labor or sexual slavery. Those children were sold. And so what the transporters wanted was commodities. What the merchants wanted was commodities. And the people in those surrounding nations, now this is important, the people in those surrounding nations were starving to death because much of their farmland was being turned into uh, uh, olive groves to have olive wine. Rome could not support, to this day, Italy is not able to support pasture lands. It's a very arid country. So the horses came from North Africa and came from parts of Asia where there were pasture lands. There were slaves that were mining gold who lived an average of three years apiece and sending that gold to, uh, to, to Rome. Romans were taken care of by Caesar. They got free flour, they got free meal, they got free oil, and most of all, they got the games inside the Colosseum where they watched not only gladiators battle it out, but they watched Christians being tossed to the lions as well. And to the, if you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, you get an idea of the kind of people that trafficked in these sorts of things. Babylon represents idolatry. I told you I would come back to why I think it's a spirit. Babylon goes all the way back to the book of Genesis where man said in Shinar, which is Babylon, we won't scatter, we will make ourselves a name. Isn't that what every young man, young woman wants to do is go out in the world and make a name for themselves? We will, we will build ourselves a tower. We can do this without God. As I shared with you last week, Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. I think what chapter 18 and 17 say to me tonight is always make sure my desires lead me to the paths of righteousness. Make sure my desires lead me to the paths of righteousness. Make sure why you do what you do is worthwhile. Make sure why you do what you do is to glorify God. And you might ask me, so what's the purpose of God? I think it's best summed up in the Westminster Confession. The purpose of God, the purpose of people is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. God wants to know us. That's the reason He sent Christ. And when you read this, you can count on it. Look at me. This is, this is what makes this so scary to me. When you read this chapter, 17, all the book of Revelation, but when you read it, what God says happens, it will happen. You can count on it as already having been done. It will happen be done. Everybody likes to quote Edward Gibbons, his book, The Decline and the Fall of Rome. So I thought I would give you a little bit of Gibbons. I don't think most people realize he wrote this book in 1788, not long after our war for independence. But here are five reasons he gave for the decline and fall of Rome. The undermining, undermining of the dignity and the sanctity of the home, which is the basis for a human society. Do you see that happening in the world today? It's not just America, but it's in other places around the world as well. 
Number two, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. When the government says, we know what to do with your money better than you know what to do with your money. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, and more immoral. Somebody told me just this week about their experience of going to a soccer game, football game in Great Britain. It can be very brutal. One night when we, I had a group of teenagers, a large group of teenagers in Brussels, after a soccer game, a riot broke out. And uh, this Middle Eastern nation had lost and they rioted in the city and I got all the students in different stores. I got trapped outside on the street and was hiding inside of a doorway. They were smashing car windows. They were pulling up. This is the historic part, the Grand Place area of, of, of Brussels. And I remember this, this young man with his white stuff on and he just came running at me with a big stone and I just said, in the name of Jesus, stop. And he looked at me and he dropped the rock and went on. There is a real spirit in this world that goes crazy. And you will see that the lust, the lust for violence is increasing even in America. Our young people being sucked into violent games and to violent video games and, and movies that glorify violence. The building of great armaments when the real enemy was within, the decay of individual responsibility. I think that evil will always be something we have, to we have to prevail against, and I think that we have to have a strong military defense. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. There's something more important to the United States than the Pentagon, and that's the family home. That's the local churches. That's what makes this country a great country. You never depend upon the military to make your country great. As Alexis de Tocqueville said, when America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. There's a reason that book stays in high popularity. And then finally, the decay of religion fading into mere form and losing touch with life, and losing power to guide, the, to guide the people. I have to close. Becky, if you'll come on up. Let me read this last passage and just give you some growth work real quickly. Now this is going to sound odd. O oh, heaven, celebrate and join in saints, apostles, and prophets. God has judged her. Every wrong you suffered from her has been judged. Now, you might read that and go, you just said, Pastor, look at with compassion. Oh, yes, look with compassion. I love looking at those pictures of World War II when the war was over. The guy kissing, the sailor kissing the girl. You know, I love those places that I've been and celebrated that. Whenever evil is, is defeated, that's a cause to celebrate. But understand this, if you think this is just the defeat of evil, what has brought this judgment of God is not the commodities, it's not the politics, it's not even the false religion. It's because they have turned on the people of God. It's because of the blood of all those people like are taking place in the world today. Because they named the name of Jesus. It's because of the children that are being robbed from their homes and being sold into sexual slavery. A strong angel reached for a boulder huge like a millstone and heaved it into the sea. Does that bring back something that Jesus says? 
If you offend these little ones, it would be better for you than a millstone was tied about your neck and you were thrown into the sea. But in this case, that magnificent, glorious, splendorous angel reaches down, he heaves it into the sea, heaved and sunk the great city of Babylon, sunk in the sea. Not a sign of her ever again. Silence the music of harpists and singers. You'll never hear flutes and trumpets again. Artisans of every kind gone. You'll never see their likes again. The voices of a millstone grinding falls dumb. You'll never hear that sound again. The lights from lamps never again. Never again laughter of bride and groom. Her traitors rob the whole earth blind and buy, buy black magic arts deceive the nations. The only thing left of blood of Babylon is blood. The blood of saints and prophets. prophets the murdered and the martyred. That's what brings the judgment of God. You lift your hand against the people of God. You lift your hand against the heart of God. If I lift my hand against your child, I lift my hand against you. You are highly loved and cared for by the Lord. And the time will come, as we looked at in Revelation 4, when those martyrs who cried out, how long, how long, you're seeing the answer to that. What do you do with this chapter? Remember, people are more important than products. People are more important than the products. Remember, God's word and will must never be compromised. And then do whatever's right, no matter what the cost. Be involved in what provides beneficial services or products. That doesn't matter whether you're a volunteer or an employee. Be sure that what you're doing and what you're giving your life to has benefit to other people. Doesn't mean you work for a Christian company, but it means as a Christian you work for companies that are doing good and not harm. My brother-in-law, who's been outstandingly successful, I remember when he graduated with his MBA, we sat down together and he made a covenant, which he's honored. He would never invest in anything that traded in tobacco or alcohol or gambling or promiscuity. He's kept God first in everything. And God has honored him. And God has used him. You will be blessed if you follow God with a passionate heart. You will be blessed. You can't out-scheme, you can't out-think, you can't out-dream, you can't out-plan, you can't out-do God at any turn or point in your life. Amen? And then finally, you're going to be successful if you'll do these things. You'll be successful, I promise you. You'll be successful. But stay humble. Don't become proud. Stay humble in your plan, your work, and the successes that God gives you. God will give you what He gave to Joshua. He'll give you good success. Amen? Well, if you have any questions, I want you to ask me tonight after the service. Next week, we're going to look at the new Jerusalem. Amen? So stand with me and let's pray together tonight. Father in heaven, I love you so much and I thank you for this chapter. God, we know you love the city. But we also know there will come a time, Jesus, when the sins of this world have reached heaven. It's not that you don't see them tonight. And sometimes I wonder how much longer.
But I pray in the meantime that, God, you will help us to live in the city, to work and to serve as the people of Christ with the knowledge that this will pass away. This will pass away. Lord, grant that each of us will be ready when the trumpet sounds and you come and you rapture the church out of here. And grant that those that we've shared with, if it happens in our lifetime, it may not happen for another 500 years, Lord, but if it happens in our lifetime, may those, Lord, who have heard our faith story, those who have perhaps heard these messages online, God, may they know that they know there's a better way through Jesus Christ, that this time will come to an end. And God, you will judge the cities of this world, and then the end shall come. For it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Consider yourselves dismissed tonight.